Go ahead and pick your speed up. You're number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director and one of your hosts. Across the table... I'm one of the other hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Representative. And Chris, today we got a guest who is um, has, has a story of the Vietnam War that hasn't really been told that much. Uh, when you told me uh, what he did and what he flew, um, I have to say I... I I, tend, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty good student of history, but I really knew nothing about it. Um, you want to bring him on? Absolutely. We're here talking with Jerry Bradley. Jerry, thank you for being here today. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, when you when you talk about an airplane, and today we're going to talk uh, about a few different aircraft, but the one we're really going to focus on is, is the C-47 airframe. You don't really consider that being a classified airframe. I think when we th- we talk about the classified missions, you think of the SR-71 or something like that. But in the C-47 or DC-3, however you know it, uh, is I mean, it's an icon in aviation history. But it was really interesting to learn a little bit more about some of the areas this airplane served in that aren't as well known and some of the missions it flew that we don't know a ton about. And, and Jerry's going to talk to us today about it. He's here tonight uh, as part of the speaker series as we're recording that. Um, but uh, let's go a little bit back to one of our first questions that we like to ask every guest. I think it's a staple in the podcast now. And Jerry, what first got you interested in aviation? Well, uh, I grew up in rural Kentucky. And my father had been a World War II ball turret gunner. He didn't talk much about that, as many of the veterans at that time uh, did not. Uh, He considered himself a survivor, and that was good enough. Uh, He survived 35 missions, and as a a young boy, uh, I would see his leather jacket, and uh, he also had a, a survival picture. Uh, that I found uh, that they used for escape and evasion pictures had a picture of him in a leather flying helmet and his his uniform that he would uh, have been in in the airplane. That was uh, traditional. So I saw all that. I also lived under, uh, uh, close to the Blytheville, Arkansas, uh, across the Mississippi River uh, Air Base, and almost once or twice a week would be a low-level uh, B-52 uh, in tow of a KC-135, and that was kind of interesting to me. So it got me interested in aviation. So that, that's how I started. And then I, uh, I had that spark when I graduated from a small-town rural high school. I uh, didn't have a lot of money, almost none, and it was extremely cheap at that time uh, for in-state residents, and I attended the University of Kentucky. And with that, they had uh, ROTC, and so a plan developed in my mind. So I can go further into that if you'd like, but that's how I got started. Well, absolutely. So where did you uh, do your flight training, and how? what kind of aircraft were you flying? Well, uh, after graduation from uh, college, I was uh, commissioned, and I was uh, assigned to Webb Air Force Base in West Texas, out among the sagebrush and the the uh, dry uh, red ground out there. And uh, there, of course, at that time, traditional pilot training students would fly uh, 
a small light airplane called a T-41 and a T-37, and then ultimately uh, the jet uh, uh, supersonic T-38. Uh, I had uh, already received uh, flight training through ROTC, had a private pilot's license, and had already soloed, but uh, you still had to go through their light airplane introduction, uh, regardless of that status. The T-41, that's uh, that's a 172, right? That is correct. Yeah. And the T-37, they, uh, they called that the tweet. The tweet. Uh, what did you think of that? How did you like that? Oh, it's my first jet airplane. Uh, <laughs> I loved it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I remember my first flight in it, uh, you know, they called it the dollar ride and uh, the instructor would take you up and uh, uh, turn you upside down. And of course, in the hot, uh, you're in that hot greenhouse canopy. And I just felt the, you know, the contents of my stomach uh, trying to come up in my mouth. And I said, you can't do this. They'll wash you out for this. You got to survive. <laughs> so I survived the first mission, never got sick ever again. Wow. And, uh, of course, I knew he was trying to make me sick. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was interesting that the, uh, you know, yeah, basically coming out of the T-41, they basically just throw you into a, a twin-engine jet aircraft, uh, essentially as a primary trainer. That's correct. <laughs> Quite the challenge. Now, did you get to fly in the T-38 as well? Oh, yes. Uh, you're, the first six months you trained in the, uh, about – I want to say two or three weeks in the T-41, the 172 version. Uh, then the rest of that time, uh, you went through uh, the T-37, and then you graduated to the T-38. In fact, out of my class uh, section, you were divided, the classes were divided into two sections. In my section, I, in fact, in my class, I was the first person to solo the T-38 uh, in my class. And so that was quite an honor. I had a instructor in the T-38 that had flown uh, F-105s in Vietnam. So he he taught me to fly that airplane, at least through solo, like a, a 105. That's awesome. The The T-38's another hot rod. I mean, that's oh, absolutely. Just, a, just a cool, cool airplane. I've talked to a few different people that have trained and flown on them. And they, even when they got their combat assignment and they flew the airplane that they had been dreaming of getting to, the T-38 is still kind of up there with the coolness factor of uh, what they flew. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. And Chris, I also find it kind of funny that, you know, the aircraft that we're talking about here, you know, with the exception of the T-37, all these aircraft are still in service. We talked about the B-52 and the C-135 earlier, and the T-38 is due to be replaced finally, but it, it, it is still the primary, or the, excuse me, the the intermediate advanced trainer for the Air Force. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool airplane. Like I said, just it's like a hot rod, you know. Um, so what was your next progression? What was the next aircraft uh, you went to, or did you get a choice? Well, I graduated, uh, I was in the upper third of my, pilot training class. But in those days, uh, mere tenths of an academic point would separate you for what handful of, of say, jet fighters that would camp, uh, be assigned to a class. And the needs of the Vietnam War at that time uh, dictated which type of airplanes you got. And they were in need in my block of airplanes that came down. I think there were A1s, uh, uh, one AC-47 which were in the process of being given to the uh, South Vietnamese Air Force. 
And the rest of the airplanes in my block were C-47s, HC and HC. And HC was a psychological warfare one, and an EC was the one I got, was uh, electronics reconnaissance. I didn't know anything about it. It said, you're going to be in C-47s. And I thought, hmm, that's different, but I guess that's what I'll do. So that's how I got assigned to that airplane. Now, what, would, what was next? Did you train stateside or did you deploy to Southeast Asia? Very quickly. All right. Uh, I graduated from pilot training in June of 1969. Went right to uh, survival, uh, basic air crew survival, POW training, uh, survival training. They called it Siri, uh, you know, escape and evasion. And uh, got back from that at the end of July of 69. So I graduated in June, went through training in July, and immediately reported to, uh, after the survival training, to England Air Force Base, Louisiana. Uh, and that's where they trained uh, the combat crew training in C-47s. So that's where I took the basic training. That lasted for a month. Wow. And then when you deployed, did you go over on a, on a ship or something, or did you take a, a C-47? No, uh, I uh, reported to Travis Air Force Base uh, in California the very next month, uh, which was uh, uh, about uh, the beginning or maybe the first week of September. And uh, the uh, this was contract. Uh, carriers, airliners, and it flew a whole bunch of us going to Vietnam, uh, flew to the uh, Clark Air Base in the Philippines. There I delayed for a couple of weeks to take jungle survival training. And then after that, we were uh, again contract uh, flown into uh, South Vietnam, into Tonsonut Air Base, and then I had to find my way up to my unit, which ultimately I was uh, stationed at Pleiku Air Base in the Central Highlands. So technical question, because so you came out of, you came straight out of T-38s into the C-47. That's correct. Heavy radial engine tailwheel <laughs> aircraft. Had you flown tailwheel before? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I'd imagine that the, yeah, what was the hardest part of learning that aircraft? Was it the engine management? Was it, uh, you know, because there's, there's just so many things um, that, that would be different uh for any pilot transitioning. This is a story that I'm going to tell tonight. Just just a brief uh, portion of the story. I report there. I go through uh, the academics, which consisted of uh, ultimately a Xerox test uh, on the academics of a C-47. I went through, uh, you had to take the side-firing gunnery academics to learn how to fire uh, the gun in case they ever needed you in an AC-47, mm. and you had to attend a gun mission. You had to go uh, essentially fly jump seat on a gun mission on the range down there to see how the operation worked, just in case they ever needed you to do that. Uh, so all of this was was uh, what we had in advance, but then I was assigned a flight instructor after we finished the about a week's of academics, and uh, as we walk out on the ramp after the briefing, uh, this uh, major looks at me and he says, Lieutenant, I'm going to teach you how to fly. And I said, Major, uh, I just graduated from Air Force Jet Pilot Training. I know how to fly. <laughs> he looked at me <laughs> and with 
these very deep blue eyes and a grin on his face. And he says, Lieutenant, like I said, I'm going to teach you how to fly. So that was my first lesson. <laughs> and he did. And uh, I, I love flying the tail wheel. What was your first impression of the C-47? Uh, it was kind of a World War II impression. Uh, yeah, God, this is my first time in this airplane. This airplane has quite a history. Uh, you know, my father uh, served as a crew member on a four-engine B-17, radial engines, and it was a new experience learning how to, uh, you know, set mixtures and props uh, other than in a light airplane. You know, you, the T-41 and Cessna 150 I'd soloed in, there's no setting of the prop, you know, no control of the prop. And so that was a new learning experience, manifold pressure, all that stuff. Do you happen to know when the airframes you flew were built? Were they, were they World War II surplus? They were originally uh, the EC versions. Uh, well, they were originally C-47 uh, delivered to the Army Air Force uh, uh, between 1943 and 1945, and they were delivered as basic A and B models, C-47s, transports. Uh, and then, as I cover in my presentation this evening, uh, these aircraft were, uh, once they designated that they wanted to use these in this specific mission, uh, they converted these under a secret uh, project name called Phyllis Ann, and this was done up in uh, New Hampshire at uh, a base up there. And they took these A and B model airplanes and uh, refitted them with brand new right uh, uh, 1820, 1830 engines, in some cases, R2000 engines, uh, redid the uh, whole airplane, put a weather radar in it, uh, uh, redesigned the forward uh, uh, instrument panel, basic layout. And uh, this evening, I'll show a difference between a normal delivered C-47 cockpit and an EC cockpit and talk about the differences. But that's what they did, numerous things to modify it for the mission. The, the C-47 was a perfect platform for what we were going to do with it. Uh, and uh, they, they, they did a number of these and delivered them, you know, ferried them over to Southeast Asia. So um, let's talk a, a little bit about an EC-47. So what was the primary mission of the airplane? The primary mission uh, was designed to direction find enemy radios on the ground in Laos and South Vietnam, uh, specifically to fix their position through DF lines of position. Uh, so to do that, you needed a very, very stable platform and the equipment to do it. Uh, we carried... Uh, Intelligent uh, intelligence specialists in the rear uh, who were signal acquisition uh, uh, operators and also code linguistic specialists. And uh, they had specific compartmentalized missions that often our front end crew didn't even know about. Sometimes we knew about what we were doing. Sometimes we didn't. Depended on the mission. And the whole idea of this was to uh, fix these enemy radios on the ground because they talked to uh, their various units uh, that 
they needed to combat control and also the flow of supplies that were coming out of North Vietnam uh, through Laos, through the Ho Chi Minh Trail system and these spot supplies flowing into South Vietnam. And they did this through trucks, bicycle traffic, uh, uh, river traffic, and they had to manage the logistics of this operation. Uh, and they did that with uh, HF, VHF radio through Morse code. And our job was to locate these units, locate this traffic, the back-end operators. Their job was to collect it and decode it and provide intel, target intel on it. And this was a mission that at the time was highly classified. Very highly classified. We all carried uh, top secret clearances. Uh, we had restrictions supposedly on uh, not flying on other airplanes with the possibility of being shot down and captured. And uh, some of us, I shouldn't say who, <laughs> uh, managed to get a few fact missions in <laughs> with, wow. with other people. <laughs> <laughs> so was the kind of on that was the was the mission that sounds like a very very specific mission that was developed for EC47 was that specifically developed for the conflict in Southeast Asia or was there um, was there a, a NATO um, component to that as well well in the early 60s yeah in the early 60s the need to the best of my knowledge and there's a lot of resource data you can check on there's a that uh, I have listed at the end of my presentation, this is resources. If anyone's interested in looking at it, uh, there was a document called Project Chico, which uh, detailed the, the history of the mission in Vietnam. There's a lot of good websites now uh, from the back end units, uh, EC47, uh, I think, .org or dot, yeah, .org .com. No, it's .org. Uh, there's an old uh, other EC47 relic uh, mission to answer your question specifically, I think the need developed at the time, and it was identified through that Phyllis Ann project, that they wanted that as a resource to use in Vietnam. But keep in mind, they were using in Vietnam all kinds of World War II airplanes. Sure. Uh, the the uh, A-1, uh, both E and the H model, uh, O-2s, O-1s, uh, uh, as forward air controllers, uh, RB-57s, C-130s, for various interdiction missions, A-26s, all kinds of machines that flew over there that fit the the theater. Sure. So, you know, walk us through, what if there was such a thing, a normal day, what did a normal mission look like for you guys? A normal mission, either... When I was based at Pleiku in the Central Highlands or in Da Nang, uh, my unit moved, and so I had been stationed at both places. Uh, A day for the crew, you would uh, probably get up about 3.30, 4 in the morning, uh, go to breakfast. Everybody wanted to have a good meal before you ate rations during the middle of the day. And then you would report to an air crew briefing in which all the crew would show up. We had typical uh, blue, uh, we called them bread buses, that would pick you up at a, a designated position, uh, two pilots, a nav, 
and then uh, the back end crew and all the back end crew were enlisted men and uh, except for the navigator of course and then uh, we would uh, report to the briefing room in which we received an intel briefing from an intel officer and that was all known intelligence for what we were going to do that day and now the navigator they had access uh, to what the uh, ordered mission was and in military parlance, they call that a frag order, fragmented order of a major order uh, for the day. And we'd have approximately maybe six aircraft uh, assigned for the morning missions. And uh, we'd do the intel brief, try to get all the known gun positions, all the known activity going on uh, that day or the previous day in the air war and how we fit into it, and then we would pre-flight the airplane after doing an aircraft uh, uh, safety briefing, so to speak, mission briefing, intel briefing. We'd proceed to the airplane and start doing the pre-flight, and everyone had their own thing to pre-flight. Uh, we would take off at a certain uh, pointed takeoff time, and we would fly at that point approximately 45 minutes to an hour uh, from that location in Vietnam across the border uh, to operate in our assigned target areas in Laos. And we would be on target uh, approximately five to six hours maybe working these targets, and then we would depart uh, to fly back. So the total day's mission would be approximately eight hours. Uh, give or take a few minutes, depending on what's going on. And in the afternoon, we would be replaced by the afternoon mission. Now, these were day missions only for our units because uh, the radio propagation changes at night. And it was less accurate, so you couldn't trust the propagation at night. So we'd work from sunup to sundown, essentially, with two sets of airplanes during the day. What were the what were the threats on a typical mission? Was there embedded was there embedded AAA in some of these columns? Uh, did MIGs ever venture that far south or over the border? Oh, you hit a nerve with that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the main threats to our airplanes were from the ground, and that's why we had to know from our intel briefing. But we didn't trust the intel briefing. You trusted your own knowledge more than the intel briefing because the intelligence briefings would list guns known on the ground. If it hadn't had a known firing in 30 days, they considered it gone. Hmm. May or may not be true. So you, you treated a, a former gun position as an active gun position if you knew it. Now, the threats from the ground were anything from a radar-controlled 85-millimeter to a 37-millimeter, probably the most common, a 23-millimeter ZU gun, anti-aircraft gun. And if you got down low enough, a 12.5 uh, equivalent of a 50 cal uh, anti-aircraft gun, very common for small units. And ultimately, later in the war, after I left, was the SA-7 man pad. Mm. Uh, uh, it had not... Uh, we knew about it in 69 and 70, but it had not been deployed. They, uh, the North Vietnamese deployed that weapon in uh, 1971, which drove the base altitude of our missions higher. Now, to, I know to answer your specific question about the threat, 
the gunners on the ground, unless they perceived the airplane above them as a direct threat, they didn't want to expose their gun position. Because you've got to understand during the air war, there's all kinds of assets in the air at any given time. A lot of itchy trigger-fingered fighter pilots fully loaded from wing to wing with all kinds of ordnance waiting to be deployed. And you give them a gun, they're going to go drop bombs on it. So the enemy knew this. So if they didn't perceive us as a direct threat, uh, they would uh, not fire on us. Now, if we did have airplanes shot down. I'll show those losses tonight uh, because sometimes they did anyway. And if you took fire, you had to move away from it. But generally, you tried to stay out of the slant range uh, distance of known guns. And now, keep in mind, the air war is taking place all the time. There is targets being hit everywhere, and you're integrated in, in, into this target area. And there may be facts working targets in there. There may be air rescues going on. There may be operations a, a few miles away, and you're listening to all this on an airborne uh, UHF frequency through, it was called ABCCC, Airborne Command and Control. It was a 130 unit with a whole module in the back of the cargo that managed the air battle 24 hours a day. So, uh, and now to answer your question about MiGs, MiGs tended to stay up in North Vietnam, but if they saw an opportunity to run across the border and go for a target, they would. And that's we had all kinds of assets out over the uh, Gulf of Tonkin out there watching these MiG bases for activity, and they would make calls on guard. And I was out there one day when they managed to shoot uh, an air rescue helicopter down mm. because it was unattended. And they launched a MiG out of Venn, and they took that, air, that helicopter right out of the air. With, with an air-to-ground, uh, air-to-air missile, and just made a high-speed pass, and we're gone before anyone could react to it. Your, your comment on the the enemy perceiving you as a threat actually that was going to flow to my next question, which is, um, did, was there any evidence that the ev enemy caught on to what you were doing up there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think they knew what we were doing; they just did not know how. Mm. I uh, I can't. I don't have specific intel to tell me that, but. Uh, you've got to know that they had some idea that they were being monitored because they did the same thing uh, when they could. And, uh, but uh, they just didn't know how we did it. You know, one of the things you touched on was uh, talking on UHF. How, on, a, on a regular mission, how cluttered was the frequency over there? <laughs> well... How cluttered is it when you come in here to Oshkosh? <laughs> <laughs> it was like that, only with combat uh, 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 transmissions. Because you had uh, UHF was the primary control. Uh, you had all kinds of uh, activity going on on UHF guard uh, when air crews would be, uh, fighters would be fighting ground targets. They'd get hit. They'd eject from these airplanes, you'd hear their beepers, you'd hear the rescues going on. Constant traffic to this airborne uh, radio control, uh, of control of the battle. Uh, you had your own interphone traffic going on inside the airplane among the crew, working your own targets. You would hear uh, 
the facts talking to airborne control. You'd hear them talking with the pilots as they brief going to dis, uh, of these airstrikes as the, uh, the forward air controllers would be briefing. Uh, we had our own reports to, to make back every 30 minutes to our base and wing headquarters to let them know we're still okay out here. That kind of thing. It, it was busy, busy, busy all the time on the radio. Did you hear some, uh, I imagine you heard some pretty intense moments on that radio. Absolutely. Is there a, is there a specific mission that stands out for you that you flew like one specific day? Uh, let me think of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hit a little bit on, on that tonight in my presentation on just one, uh, just in passing. Uh, uh, I found out uh, years after I returned, after some of this became declassified, that we were the primary source of target information for B-52 arc lights. Now, an arc light is a cell of B-52s that drops strings of uh, 100 bombs, of 250-pound uh, uh, bombs, uh, Mark 82s, I think. And uh, we would get notified by our navigator sometimes as, uh, 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 hey, we're going to have to move out of the target area. There's an unscheduled arc light. And I'd look over at the co-pilot and I'd go, an unscheduled arc light. Now, let me get this straight. Uh, we have to get up early in brief. And these B-52 pilots get up early in Guam and they brief and they fly in groups of three in, at 30,000 plus feet headed for Vietnam. And all of a sudden this is unscheduled. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> that was just common sense would tell you this. And we'd move out of the way. And then uh, this arc light would be announced on guard. And the next thing you know, the target area is, uh, is exploding from these streams of, of bombs. I saw, I show a few aftermath pictures of that today. That's pretty impressive. And sometimes we knew the target we were after, uh, sometimes we didn't uh, uh, as front-end crews because it was c compartmentalized information. Other times we knew we'd be assigned uh, to go after a certain uh, North Vietnamese uh, uh, regiment trying to locate it. They were trying to piece together where it was. I remember there was one right on the border area. The commander of this uh, North Vietnamese uh, regiment's name was General Ben. B-I-N-H. And, uh, of course, there was a TV series in the 60s called Gentle Ben. And we looked for that unit for, I don't know, two or three days. And I had always kind of joke we're going out looking for Gentle Ben. <laughs> what was the, um, like, I assume because of the nature of the aircraft, um, you had the standard Southeast Asia paint jobs on them? Yes. Uh, they were they were painted in uh, uh, camouflage colors, uh, and I, I'll have a few pictures of those this evening too. Standard uh, Vietnam camouflage. Did you uh, did you guys ever get into naming them and stuff like that? Oh yeah. Oh really? <laughs> Nose art all over them. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I flew uh, the names of some of the aircraft: Over Torque, the Marauder, uh, the Fighter Goon. It had shark's teeth on it. Uh, uh, I must go from Wiley Coyote. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of those. Uh, uh, I'm thinking Miss Susan. I have a picture of one that was called Miss Susan. And usually these were named by the crew chiefs that tended these airplanes. Um, so 
we didn't have any control over our own nose art, but they had nose art on them. It was kind of neat. Was there a favorite you had that you flew? I flew uh, one uh, called 702, which uh, tail number, I have a model of it uh, that was um, uh, uh, called Miss Lula. It was kind of fun. I flew that one a lot. Uh, And it was just by luck of the draw. You never knew which airframe you were going to get. And they had various mission models. Some of the later models of these airplanes were uh, uh, configured with radar jamming, low-light level TV, Hmm. and uh, infrared, believe it or not, uh, I think. It's amazing to think that some of these aircraft were the same airplanes that were dropping paratroopers on D-Day. Uh, and then still around serving in Vietnam. Yes, I have in my presentation the list of the delivery date of the airplane's pictures we're going going to see. Uh, the, I felt very fortunate because uh, I got to serve as a young lieutenant with some World War II lieutenant colonels, a couple of full colonels at the end of their career. And these men had flown all kinds of World War II. Many of them had flown the C-47s in the European theater. And as I mentioned this evening, the lessons I learned from them, the leadership lessons uh, that they taught me have served me well in my professional aviation career. Well, let me ask you, uh, um, while still serving in Vietnam, but a slightly different topic is, what did you do in between missions? What did you do to pass some of the time? What was life like at the base? Well, we flew every other day, and uh, that's just the rotation. So on the day off, sometimes you had uh, assigned ground duties. Uh, you might have to, uh, to be the duty officer on call. Other times, you just figured out ways to kill time when they weren't shooting rockets at the base or mortars. <laughs> and uh, typical in Vietnam, they had uh, they had hobby shop things. You could do music recordings. Most of us would go to the BX, buy these huge reel-to-reel tape recorders and record the music of the day because they had it all available to you. Put together these long music tapes, bring all this back, buy stereo gear, and then, of course, uh, visit the uh, Oak Club at night and uh, or, or in the afternoon and party and play dice games and card games and typical ways to pass time that military has done traditionally for hundreds of years, probably. And other times, uh, once we moved our uh, our operation to Da Nang, we had access to China Beach on your off days. And you could go over uh, to the beach and, uh, 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 you know, hang out on the beach. That was kind of fun for, uh, I know, my wife here, she she saw me when I came home or from R and R, and I was very very suntan. She said, "Wait, you've been away at war and you're all suntan." <laughs> but I'd go to the beach every other day. You know, we had we had quite a few activities there. We would do too. Well, you know, and we're actually we're really lucky. Your 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 wife is here. Um, you know. Did, did you write letters back and forth, or did how did you keep in touch uh, during your time gone? Yeah, we kept in touch uh, via letters, and we also kept in touch via audio tape recorders. We uh, uh, we used, uh, you know, most everyone at that time would buy these little Sanyo uh, 
tape recorders, cassette recorders, and you just make recordings. And we'd trade these recordings back and forth so you'd actually hear the voice. Communications in those days were not all that great. For telephone, you could, if it was an emergency, the only other way you could talk is uh, the amateur radio operators would, you know, had a what they called a Mars system that you could talk long range, but they, even that wasn't good. Uh, but it, you could at least hear someone's voice. It wasn't communications we have today. I think there was one major communication satellite during the Vietnam War that the DOD used. You know, but and when you rotated home, when you when you finally came home, was was it? Uh, we all know that uh, this country didn't necessarily get it right welcoming home our, our veterans from that conflict. Did did you have trouble when you came home at all? They didn't get it right. Uh, when I went, uh, when I was going through my uh, – what I neglected to tell you when you asked me about going to school, all around me was hippies, the drug protests, war protests. Uh, professors at the college would talk down at you when you wore your uniform to class. I've been sneered at. I could care less about all of that. All I wanted to do was fly airplanes. So – was I going to go to war? It didn't bother me. That's what my father did. That's what I could do. So I served over there. And once I got there, I said, this is kind of odd. We got all these major bases. We're not advancing. We're setting targets. I guess that's what we're going to do. And then when I came back, uh, I remember uh, I landed in San Francisco. And then I had a trans flight. I was still in uniform. Uh, and at that time, the Air Force had these light tan uniforms, and I landed at L.A. Airport to change to an air, another airplane to go to uh, the East Coast to, to meet Susie here. And I'm in the L.A. Airport, and people are just sneering at me and looking at me. And uh, one guy, I went into the men's restroom, and he looks at me in uniform, and he just kind of scoffed. And I'm thinking, my God, uh, 24 hours ago, I was— I was happy to be leaving combat, and now people are just sneering at me, and it didn't feel good. It really didn't. Yeah, my my dad uh, was in Vietnam. He told me a story that uh, when you were in Vietnam, you couldn't wait to come home, and then when you came home, you almost wanted to go back, uh, is, is what he had said. So yes. uh, it was, he said no, nothing felt right you know, anymore after that. But uh, Well, and your, flying, your military flying didn't end. You actually ended up going into a really um, a VIP role, flying some important aircraft. Uh, can you tell us how you transitioned into that? Well, I had a step in between. I, I uh, was assigned, uh, it's funny you should ask, Tom, you ask about the T-37, uh, rotating out of Vietnam just before I got ready to rotate. Uh, they assigned me to the training command. I was going to be an instructor in a T-37. And I thought, oh, this is great. I actually got what I wanted. I wouldn't have to come back in a B-52. Not that that's <laughs> bad, but I'd be back uh, over there. And uh, uh, about a month before I rotated, they changed that. They said, uh, hold on, Lieutenant. You fly round motors. We have round motors in the training command. They sent me to the Navigator Training Unit out in uh, Sacramento, California. So that unit had conveyors. T-29s, R-2800 radials. I thought I'd been uh, kind of passed over. I get there and I realize that they had 100 conveyors at this base, and this was the world's largest flying club. <laughs> 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 it's 
so uh, as soon as I checked out, they like to use vets. Uh, we had experience, and they uh, they turned me into an instructor to teach pilots coming into these airplanes. So I did that for about three years. I found myself then in the initial cadre of pilots that flew the T-43 or the Boeing 737-200 mm. NAV trainer. I did that for a couple of years and was fortunate enough to get selected to uh, Andrews to the presidential unit, the 89th Military Airlift Wing at that time, is what it was called. Uh, and I flew uh, executive VIP transport in a Lockheed Jetstar, and I was dual qualified in a B-90 King Air. That's fantastic. And you actually flew the King Air that's uh, in the Air Force Museum. That's correct. And also one of the Jetstars there, the uh, I, I had flown the airplane. I did not fly the president. I flew the designated airplane uh, to take it down to uh, Texas uh, for maintenance. So I got to fly the airplane, but I'd actually flown all those airplanes. And then I was fortunate enough to do some TDY operations in Central America with VIP transport at that time. And we took some of those airplanes to Europe. I got to fly in Europe in it. I also got to do a moonlighting job in Europe. And then uh, by that time, I had about 10 years in the Air Force. I was doing very well, but uh, an upstart airline down in Texas had discovered these military train uh, 73 pilots. <laughs> and I had some buds there that waved me in, and I, I joined uh, that airline, Southwest Airlines, in 1977. Worked a full career there. I later on, uh, finished uh, in the reserves and retired as an admissions officer for the Air Force Academy uh, uh, and put in 20 good years out of 30 <laughs> and retired from the U.S. Air Force. So I had a question on the on the VIP role. This is an, this is one area that really kind of fascinates me, and I imagine some of it's probably still classified. But could you tell us a little bit about the uh, uh, some of the the, the VIP um, evacuation contingencies that you trained for? I'm not quite sure what I what you're getting at, Tom. Evacuations. Uh, okay, so um, you know, for example, uh, uh, like a, a Cold War gone hot scenario, you know, where you need to get people to where they need to go, that kind of thing. I don't specifically remember anything like that. Uh, I can give you an example of probably a classified type. Uh, Operations not classified any longer. We would ha we would fly people like cabinet members, uh, heads of state, uh, on specific missions. Uh, you know, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, and they had very. Uh, uh, I have picked up uh, salt negotiators mm -hmm. uh, from Kennedy and flown them back to uh, uh, Andrews in the. Uh, and be in the cockpit of the B-90 King Air, and you would hear the positions at the table. That's why we had top-secret clearances. Sure. And you couldn't, you know, we absolutely didn't talk about any of that. But you had to know the nature of the of the business of your of your VIP, or else you couldn't handle the mission. Uh, I had one one time where uh, the the Russian MiG pilot Victor Belenko. When he defected with the MiG-25, I got to fly him from Andrews down to um, um, Langley. And uh, 
they they treated that as a super secret. It's a whole other story that you probably don't <laughs> need to take up your time here to listen to. But uh, it's kind of interesting. Yes, uh, I, that was a closest thing I could say that was a super secret thing at the time because the Russians were uh, highly irritated that he had defected with that airplane. Wow. Yeah. Well, I know we're we're running short on time. I'm gonna hand it off to Tom here to close it. But uh, on behalf of all of us here at EAA, uh, all of our members and the staff here, uh, we want to say thank you both for for coming out here to speak tonight to share your story here with us, uh, and uh, and also welcome home if you haven't uh, been told that. So, uh, thank you for for your service and everything you did over in uh, Vietnam and and continue to do here stateside as well. Well, I want to thank. You, Chris, the EAA, Tom, thank you for interviewing me. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Jerry. This has been re- really, uh, really fascinating. I, you know, love hearing about, you know, different different air missions that don't necessarily get a lot of the the press and highlights, but are still, you know, in very, very interesting in their own light. And uh, I think your career is, is very emblematic of that because you've gotten to do some very cool stuff. Um so with that, um, just to close up the episode, uh, just um, going through everybody who makes this show work. Uh, Chris has been handling the, all the pre-production and the scheduling uh, over the last few months for the Green Dot. Um, we've got Rob Molash behind the uh, behind the panel today. Uh, Scott Geezy does the uh, post-production work, and we have our pubs and marketing team, publications and marketing, excuse me, uh, that handle the uh, the distribution of the podcast. So everybody here at EAA helps to helps to produce it in one way or another. Um, and, uh, and thank you very much to all the listeners for continuing to tune in in our, I think, uh, this is our sixth year doing this wow. podcast, uh, which is insane. I, I it's time has really gone by. I'm not even sure which episode number this is, but I'm sure we've done well north of a hundred or yeah. 200 now. Um, so keep, keep listening, keep the reviews coming and all of that. And, uh, and, Again, uh, Jerry is here for the EAA Museum Speaker Series, uh, which uh, a lot of our guests um, come from. Uh, so if you're in the Oshkosh area or want an excuse to come on up to Oshkosh to hear some very interesting um, folks from aviation talk, uh, we do those uh, at the um, toward the end of every month. Go to our website to check that out or go to EAA Aviation Museum's Facebook page uh, to find out more about that. Uh, and with that, um, we'll catch you next time when you are cleared to land on the green dot.